Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called The Illicit Mining and Trade of Extractives in Africa. Welcome everybody to this panel discussion on the illicit mining and trade of extractives in Africa. I will be the moderator for this session. My name is Kiran Pereira. I'm the author of the book, Sand Stories, Surprising Truths About the Global Sand Crisis and the Quest for Sustainable Solutions. I'm also the founder of Sand Stories. To set the context for this particular talk, Africa is growing at unprecedented rates and it's being shaped by forces that are both familiar and new to us. Several recent studies have projected that by the end of this century, Africa will become the center of the world's urban future. It will be the only continent experiencing population growth and 13 out of 20 of the world's largest urban areas will be in Africa. It will also house more than a third of the world's global population. So the question before us is, can we manage this growth in a way that benefits all of humanity and the rest of the natural world. Illicit mining and trading of minerals is a huge challenge. Today we have with us three fantastic speakers who will share their expertise with us. And I will introduce each person just before they speak. Each speaker will get about 10 minutes for the presentation, followed by ample time for a Q&A session. The entire duration of the event is 75 minutes. And audience, as audience members, you are invited to present your questions in the Q&A box. If you have a very short question, then you can also raise your hands and the team in the secretariat will um, give you the opportunity to do that. But please make sure your questions are brief. If you'd like the questions to be addressed to a, spe a specific speaker, do mention that, otherwise I will assign them as I see fit. So our first speaker for today is Oluwole Ojewole. He has a PhD in urban and regional planning. He works as a coordinator for Central Africa for the Regional Organized Crime Observatory at the Institute of Security Studies. Over to you, Oluwole. Thank you so much, Kieran. I am very delighted to be part of this meeting and then for the opportunity that has been extended to us as the HENAX program at the Institute for Security Studies. So um, I will just talk briefly about my recent research in the DRC, which has to do with um, cotton um, mining and the illicit trading of it. And in terms of um, what is very, very important, which I believe our global audience are mostly aware about, is the fact that the DRC is noted to be one of the wealthiest countries in the world in terms of natural endowments. And a prominent World Bank report estimates that um, about um, uh, um, that they caught the mineral deposit in the DRC is in excess of 24 trillion US dollar in terms of its works. And what is also striking for us, for anybody that has traveled to the DRC, is that in terms of development outcomes, 
this wealth is not reflecting in the quality of life of the people. And I think that is the centrality of my message in the course of my presentation. So um, in the course of my research, one of the things that we have also discovered is the fact that uh, what is undermining these development outcomes to properly reflect in terms of the quality of life of the people is as a result of transnational organized crime, which involve both the local actors and international um, um, business within the extractive sector. So I identify these seven dimensions of um, organized crime in the DRC, which has a um, network of actors who are participating in the criminal economy. And the first thing is illegal mining. So basically, how does it work? Um, whether as a Congolese or as a foreign investor who is interested in the extractive sector, there are certain standards and rules that have been put in place by the legislative and policy framework in the country. But what we find out is that sub, on, on many occasions, these are circumvented by the locals and even the foreigners themselves. So rather than um, getting the license to operate within the extractive sector engaging in quarter mining as a strategic mineral, for instance, a lot of um, artisanal miners engage in what they call illegal mining. So they become illegal because they don't have the license to actually operate. And the second thing to this is counterfeiting. And this manifests in two dimensions, falsifying of um, documents, whether custom documents, border security documents, in getting these strategic minerals into neighboring countries, which have become transshipment corridor, and um, particularly with, uh, in this regard, four countries have been identified. And that those are Tanzania, Burundi, Uganda, and Rwanda. These are exit corridor through which this strategic mineral is moved and funneled into the global supply chain in terms of smuggling. And there's also the dimension of resource predation, which speaks about the predatory state practices among some of these countries that I just mentioned now, who um, have, uh, some of them don't even have a cotton deposit at all, but they are declaring these minerals within their trade balance as minerals that are um, emanating within the country. So I tag these as predatory state practices. And then the next one is pollution, which takes place between, uh, within a network of actors, security and state, um, state actors, security forces, be it foreign businesses and local business people who are engaging within the quarter mining. And then there's fronting. Fronting actually I, um, undermines the local content law within the country, which provides for certain incentives for the Congolese people to be able to participate in the extractive sector. So what some of these foreign businesses do is that they look for Congolese uh, uh, people to front for them so that they can circumvent some of this uh, local content law and, and do business as though they were Congolese people within the quarter supply chain. And the last is corporate corruption by middlemen and multinationals, which is actually going on as far as the quarter supply chain is concerned in the DRC. So uh, I, um, this leads me in the direction of how the actors and are relating with each other within this ring that um, you can see on the screen which speaks about the mining and illicit trading of cotton in the DRC. So you have a multiplicity of actors who engage within these seven dimensions that I've identified, and then they engage in different activities from resource predation to smuggling, corruption, fronting, counterfeiting, 
and collusion. And the interesting thing is that within this network analysis, there are actors that participate in multiple domains. Uh, as far as this cotton, uh, cotton mining and its illicit trading is concerned in the DRC. So um, I have some strategic recommendation because what I think is striking for me in the course of this research is the fact that um, there is um, what I refer to as limited statehood in terms of driving the necessary extractive reform that is, uh, that is important within the DRC. The country is approaching the 2023 election now, and what is on the front burner for politicians of the country is actually how they are going to take hold of power. Whereas what is very, very important, which can uh, be very, very fighter in translating political capital to actually work for the, to improve the quality of life of the people is to drive extractive reform within the country. And I've identified um, what different actors are supposed to do under my recommendations. You can go to the recommendation um, page. So in terms of strategic recommendations that I've identified within the DRC, um, I've tried to put these in four dimensions in terms of what the Congolese government should be doing. Um, in earlier slide, I've identified crime harms that are actually affecting the quality of life of the people and also creating environmental despoilation in Eastern DRC. So what is strategic is that there is a need for reform of the Congolese Environmental Agency that has the responsibility to enforce environmental impact assessment and implementation of environmental management plan by the extractive companies. This is one of the strategic policy and legislative framework that has been undermined by the actors, the criminal actors within the illicit mining and trading of cotton in the DRC. And it's also important for the civil society organization to train and equip observatory groups at the local level to validate or invalidate some of the certification audit reports that are coming from the, from the government, from the state actors. And I conclude to say, against the backdrop of human and environmental harms associated with mining and illicit trading of cotton in the DRC, the approach to extractive reform in the country needs a fresh look. And addressing the lingering problem that my research has identified um, with respect to mining and illicit trading of cotton and associated in part in the eastern DRC has become uh, imperative, particularly to improve the quality of life of the people in the in the in that part of the country. Thank you. Thank you, Oluwile. That was an enlightening presentation. It's quite striking to learn uh, how much is lost uh, in annual revenue from illicit trading and uh, the mining, and because of corruption. I'm sure you will have plenty of questions at the end of the session. So thank you very much for this presentation. Thank now, you so much. Now, moving on to the next speaker. Our next speaker is Mohammed Dakar. He will talk about, about an underappreciated mineral that lies at the heart of development as we know it today. Mohammed is the regional coordinator for Eastern Africa for the Enact Regional Organized Crime Observatory. Mohammed carries out Enact research. He coordinates the provision of technical support and strategic engagement to stakeholders in transnational organized crime matters in the region. He has a master's degree in peace, conflict, and development studies from the Universidad Jaime Premier in Spain. Over to you, Mohammed. Thanks, Kieran, and a very good day to the audience tuned in. My name, as you rightly put, is Mohammed Dahar, and I work for the EU funded ENACT program, 
as the regional coordinator for Eastern Africa. I really want to pick up from where my colleague uh, Oluwole left. A fascinating talk, by the way, uh, Oluwole. And I want to talk about another natural resource, uh, uh, to talk about the mining and the trading of uh, this resource. And this resource is sand. As you are aware, sand is used in almost every material thing uh, that exists in today's uh, world. And it's the second uh, most uh, used resource uh, after water. But this uh, commodity is controlled by criminal cartels that operate unabated through the use of violence. I really want to take the, this opportunity to present to you the preliminary findings of my soon to be published uh, paper on sand mining in Kenya. I will present these findings in two parts. Uh, the first part is how is this ma criminal market driven? And second is what impact uh, does this market have on ecosystems and people's lives and their livelihoods? Uh, now we see that uh, mining sand unlike harvesting is an irreversible process and it is leaving permanent scars uh, on damaged ecosystems and having a very negative impact to the environment. Mining a resource entails extracting it all when we say gold mining, we are removing uh, you know, uh, the gold in totality in a particular natural habitat that it exists. Harvesting on the other side uh, indicates a cyclically replenishing a cycle uh, of a process. So while mining is exhaustive, harvesting yeah. is actually sustainable. And as a non-renewable resource, once sand is mined exhaustively, it simply never regenerates back because it takes a very long time, uh, you know, for sand uh, to form uh, in its natural habitat. And in Kenya, this is leading uh, to the depletion of the sand reserves and degrading ecosystems. And the trade value chain of mining sand is directly associated with violence and unsustainable sources of income uh, for the communities. When we look at the criminal market uh, of sand here in Kenya, we see, for example, uh, in a county, uh, where you have around 500 overloaded 10-ton sand trucks leaving uh, that particular uh, county in a day. This is equivalent to about eight to 10,000 tons of sand living in one particular county uh, in a day. And most of this sand is, of course, uh, not uh, legally uh, uh, mined uh, or uh, extracted. Uh, still in another county, uh, the research shows that, uh, indicates that you have around over 200 uh, overloaded uh, lorries that leave that particular county in a day. Kenya is administered through counties. We have 47 different counties and of course, uh, one national government. Who are these actors uh, who are driving uh, this market? We see that uh, uh, we are having like a mafia uh, style uh, outfit uh, that, take a, that have taken advantage of the time in setting up and controlling uh, this market uh, unabated due to a very prolonged absence of regulation and control measures. The first uh, unequivocal uh, legislation on sand in, in guidelines in, uh, in Kenya was actually in 2007. My study has placed a typology to understand the structure and actors of these sand cartels. And we see that these actors involve state officials, transport companies, loaders, and brokers 
The cartels are organized. Of course, they receive protection from state actors. They're territorial. They're extremely violent and in conflict sometimes uh, among themselves and also uh, with the community. So we see like a, an intricate web, you know, a very busy uh, intricate web of actors uh, in the sand uh, value chain. Corruption, of course, is, is pervasive uh, and government officials uh, are involved in, in this uh, sand trade. Uh, we see senior state uh, officials like politicians as stakeholders in the trade. I mean, this is a, a very different connotation. Being a stakeholder in a trade means you actively, you know, you're actively involved uh, in, in that particular activity. Uh, we, we, I have mentioned that these uh, cartels are, 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 are territorial. There's a lot of uh, gang violence uh, involved in the sand mining uh, activity. Uh, my study also places that in one uh, site where sand is mined, you can have up to eight gangs. Sand is mined either in rivers, in lakes, or in land pits. So in one particular river passing through one area, you can have eight guns uh, actively you know, uh, mining sand. <clears throat> and uh, the, the violent, uh, violence between uh, them happens uh, at very different uh, levels. And the threshold, of course, also uh, varies. The second finding on the impact of sand mining uh, on what it has had on the environment and people's livelihoods, we see that uh, it is destroying uh, ecosystems and this is having multiplier effects uh, on others. Primary to this loss, of course, is uh, the loss of biodiversity where birds that rely on water sources either die or relocate to other ecosystems for survival. And when this happens, uh, trees and other vegetations around the sand ecosystems also wither. The surrounding land eventually becomes bare and loses its productivity, uh, hindering activities such as farming uh, that is relied as a source of income by many communities in sand producing areas. I won't say much on the impact of sand harvesting has had on ecosystems as it manifests itself everywhere where this practice uh, takes place. We see this in Indonesia where, you know, 24 islands uh, disappeared. Uh, being totally mined out. We see this in India uh, uh, playing out. We see this in China uh, also. So it is really uh, evidence uh, on, on, on the negative impact it has had uh, on, on, on the environment. And sand in Kenya has gotten from the rural parts of the counties and commercially sold in urban cities, such as, such as Nairobi, Kisumu, Mombasa, Nakuru, and, and Waterview. Most of the people living in sand uh, producing uh, areas engage in the trade as an avenue to earn income and keep them off absolute poverty. And poverty is vicious. Uh, and reducing it has remained uh, very complex, especially in rural population uh, where poverty is, is quite uh, uh, pervasive. Again, we see that sand uh, trade is a male-dominated and driven industry with women and girls supporting the trade in the periphery. I think it's very important to look at the gender dimension uh, of, of, of sand mining. We see that directly women sell food to loaders in sand sites and seldom uh, women uh, may engage in uh, other activities like uh, sharpening shovels, washing sand trucks and what have you. Indirectly though, sand has enhanced the involvement of women, especially girls in commercial sex work. 
Since the sun business is cash-based and largely informal due to lack of regulation, sun loaders and brokers earn on a daily basis after work. Lastly, also we see that the sun trade is a youth enterprise and most children who don't continue with higher education engage in it. All you need to start in the sun business is a simple shovel and you're in. The industry is labor uh, intensive, of course, and uh, children uh, are involved in mining sand in wooden uh, canoes by dredging sand in very fast moving waters without any protective gears. Uh, I mean, uh, recently we see with the erratic school closures during the COVID-19 pandemic, it is observed that most children have engaged in the sand trade. The disruption of learning with schools opening and closing abruptly, I hope it doesn't happen again now with this uh, new uh, variant, uh, but we see that this is one of the drivers that enable children to focus entirely on the sun trade. Uh, it might be a challenge really to get the children back, you know, uh, to, to school. And to conclude, uh, Kiran really is to ask critical questions of what can be done to stop or rather mitigate sun mining and why should it be done? On what can be done is that part uh, from the negative impact the practice is having on the environment and people's lives and livelihoods. Sand harvesting and trading can not only be regulated, but can also be a top revenue earner for local authorities while providing employment opportunities, thus reducing the youth bulge. And why should we do this? Is that with lack of a formidable alternative, sand remains our only option for the advancement of human civilization. There are still uh, alternative sources of sand uh, but nothing yet uh, has replaced sand in terms of volume, in terms of the unique properties it has in uh, the construction industry. And sand, unlike charcoal or any other licit uh, product, uh, is very uh, unique. But this has to be done through a very comprehensive framework that will need to weed out the, crimin the criminality involved and make the sector uh, crime-proof. And governments need to put in place, you know, proper sun harvesting, utilization, conservation, and trading legislations, uh, you know, uh, in place. Ladies and gentlemen, what I've described today is not unique to the East Africa region. But this, for, but this form of exploitation is happening everywhere around the world. It's happening in Cameroon. It's happening in the uh, Asian subcontinents. It's happening in other regions uh, here in Africa. And with that, I would request to stop and hand it back to you, Kiran. And thank you once again for finding time to attend this panel. Thank you. Thank you, Mohamed. That was an excellent uh, talk, very informative. Uh, we don't often think about the nuance between harvesting and mining. And so it's quite interesting to think about this non-renewable resource and how we use it. Um, also interesting was the gender perspective. We don't often see these kind of discussions coming up to the fore. And I think it's so very important. Um, so now we, let's move on to our next speaker. Our third speaker for the day is Abdel Kader Abdelrahman. He's a senior researcher in the NAC program in Dakar. Before joining the Institute of Security Studies, Abdel Kader worked as an independent researcher. And before that position, he also worked as a consultant for Waterland Risk. Abdel Kader holds a master's in international relations from the University of Durham and a bachelor in politics and geography from the School of Oriental and African Studies. Over to you, Abdul Kader. Thank you, Kieran. Uh, good day, everyone. Um, so my talk will simply, I will, um, I think that uh, 
Mohammed has made it easy for me. He's paid a way to uh, talk about sand trafficking, which, as he said, is a uh, key issue not only in Kenya, but in many parts in Africa and in, um, in Asia or elsewhere. So my focus would be on Morocco. Uh, and I would really uh, focus on how this issue of sand trafficking is uh, permitted and, and facilitated by a different uh, um, components within the uh, Moroccan system. So to start with, sand extraction in Morocco underlines a really deeply rooted political and socioeconomic web of illegal activities, such as corruption, and then a lack of construction safety and transnational commerce. It also, uh, and really importantly, uh, increases the uh, degradation of the environment, putting the uh, vulnerable coastal ecosystem at risk. Uh, despite all this, and despite the, uh, the, 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 the tremendous impact uh, sand trafficking in Morocco has, uh, it's really difficult to point out those responsible behind uh, this trafficking. One reason for that is that naming people uh, is um, very uh, difficult and it's also, as I was explained, perceived as a taboo. One reason for that is that some people uh, who are involved or who might be involved uh, have very official uh, um, activities. So investigating sand trafficking in Morocco as a result is really difficult and can be dangerous. And yet, if the authorities don't do anything for that, if they do not tackle the issue of um, sand trafficking, uh, the result for that would be a tremendous negative impact on the tourism industry on which the Moroccan economy um, depends on. So uh, next slide, please. So broadly speaking, uh, when I conducted my work on uh, uh, Morocco sand trafficking, I would say that sand trafficking in Morocco is understood especially from a criminal perspective. There is a, uh, sand trafficking is uh, allowed and facilitated at least uh, by a traditional political system. It's, uh, sand trafficking also underlines gray areas and loopholes in which companies, uh, from which companies benefit. As I was saying, uh, sand trafficking, it's difficult to name people behind this. There's also this issue of uh, lobbying from construction and cement companies, which work hand in hand with sand. So as I was saying before, if nothing is done, Moroccan beaches may disappear in the long term, and which would also mean less tourists visiting the country. Having said that, and as Mohammed was saying, uh, what can be done when it comes to sand trafficking? And one issue is to look at alternative materials and techniques, which already exist in other parts of the world. Next slide, please. So construction sector is, is booming in Morocco and that 60% of the Moroccan population lives uh, on the littoral uh, where 50% of the tourism capacity is also concentrated. At least 55% of the sand sold on the Moroccan, uh, Moroccan national market comes from the illegal coast, coastal sand. 
And as I was saying, it's a, it has a, a very uh, devastating impact on the environment. Uh, one thing has to be said is that many places that have been impacted in the past years are part of what the Moroccan uh, government called the Plan Azur, which meant to bring uh, 10 million tourists by 2010. However, all those places have been uh, disfigured by this sand trafficking. Next slide, please. Sand trafficking is also uh, related to violence. Uh, we can get uh, illegal roadblocks near sand mining, illegal sand mining. There is a clear appetite for criminals, enterprises, and individuals, individuals alike. There's intimidation, harassment, and to be uh, and overall, there's also what some people would call sand mafia, which is uh, operating with no scruples, ignoring roadblocks and even killing people on their way. But this is something that is not related to Morocco only, and it happens elsewhere in Kenya, in Asia, and many other places. Next slide, please. So one thing we have to understand is that this trafficking is also based on a very uh, large uh, uh, basis. The Moroccan system is based on uh, what is called uh, the Mahzen, which is a very complex territorial system made of regions, provinces, and prefectures. There are 12 regions and seven, 75 uh, provinces. These provinces are themselves divided into uh, uh, hundreds of uh, uh, communes or small cities and villages. And this is how the, uh, 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 the system works. And basically, every, uh, the, 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 there's a basically a web of intertwined territory, which is further strengthened by a pyramidal political economic system, which infinite facilitates the presence of loopholes tied for all kinds of trafficking. Uh, next slide, please. So as I was saying, this system allows all sorts of trafficking impunity. Uh, for instance, when I was there, I would visit some places and road which were not meant to be closed off were indeed closed off. Uh, there were guards there uh, preventing anyone from uh, uh, entering the, the site. There were policemen uh, preventing from uh, approaching that site, whereas there was no reason whatsoever to, uh, um, to go there and to visit that uh, coastal uh, site. And this really underlines that it's not only a mafia, but there's also a, a, a corruption that, uh, that facilitates this trafficking uh, over there. Uh, next slide, please. So as I was saying, uh, sun trafficking is very uh, a sensitive issue in, in, in Morocco, and it's almost a taboo. Uh, basically, as a, someone was telling me, uh, there's, we can talk about the places of exploitation, where it happens, the cost has gone up or down, but we cannot talk about it once. And one reason for that is that, as I was saying, officials, some officials may be there, may be involved in that. Uh, overall, there's, it is said that 45% of the uh, uh, sun of Moroccan uh, beaches are controlled by uh, and run by mafia syndicates. Sand trafficking is also uh, uh, the prey for 
uh, drug barons as they uh, use their drug money earnings to proceed with um, money laundering with sand quarries and sand and construction company, companies. Truck transports sand almost every night in very open manner. It's, as a result, it's really impossible not to see those um, uh, uh, transports, uh, which can be counted for hundreds of lorries per night. But yet, it seems that no one is uh, preventing this. Uh, next slide, please. There's also this issue of um, uh, lobbying. Cement companies can be um, uh, indirectly involved in the sand trafficking. One reason for that is that cement companies, I mean, in order to, to, to uh, fabricate and to make concrete, uh, which is made of sand, water, and cement. Therefore, cement companies, in, to some extent, need that sand to be, um, uh, for their business to be, uh, to be pursued. Next, uh, next slide, excuse me, please. So as a conclusion, I would say that uh, illegal sand extraction in Morocco remains a core issue the uh, government must tackle, as if nothing is done, uh, Moroccan beaches uh, will be disfigured. They would even disappear with the consequence of less foreign tourists visiting Morocco and with the dramatic environmental consequences on Moroccan and beyond ecosystem. Uh, ironically, as I was saying, uh, the, most of the places that have been uh, affected by the uh, sand trafficking in Morocco are those that were part of the Plan Azur uh, conducted by the American government. These places today are deeply affected, disfigured and eroded, uh, with a place like La Roche being a clear example of this disfiguration where dunes have literally disappeared. It also underlines that before being a legal and environmental issue, uh, this um, sand trafficking is a political one as it is a question of development strategy. Uh, Moroccan authorities surely bear heavy responsibility in this issue of uh, sand trafficking and especially on the environmental and economic situation related to this. As, but beyond sand, it is an entire system of corruption that is in place in Morocco that has to be tackled if, uh, as part of this solution. But yet, in order to do that, uh, there is also this issue of uh, pyramidal nature of the system, which facilitates uh, sand trafficking uh, in Morocco. So, as I was, uh, as Mohammed was saying earlier, uh, there are alternatives, and one thing one has to do is to really think of what could be the best practices for sand trafficking to stop in Morocco, but elsewhere in the world. Uh, this is it for today, and thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Abdul Qadir. That was a very enlightening and enriching presentation. So um, we have some questions here. Uh, the question being uh, from uh, Lucia to Abdul Qadir. The question is, do you have knowledge about sand trafficking in Senegal, where the construction business is booming? Uh, I don't have a, uh, I have an idea on Senegal, but on, not only on Senegal, but in the West Coast, and we're in, the, in West Africa. Sand mining, illegal sand mining in West Africa, in Ghana, in Senegal, 
exists, it pervades, it has, just as in Morocco, uh, a very tremendous negative impact. To what extent? Uh, I cannot say at this stage, but for sure, for sure, this is an issue, as Mohammed was saying, as, as, as I said, it's not an issue related to Morocco only, but to Senegal, to Ghana, to Kenya, and other places in Africa. And um, the, Lucia also asked the same question to um, Mohammed about Sudan. Did, would you know about the sand trafficking in Sudan? Uh, I don't know really, uh, but I, I just want to marry that with two two pointers as a pickup also from Abdel Kader. I mean, his his research really also uh, uh, alludes to uh, cross border nature of the sun trade. Look in in, in Africa uh, as a whole as a continent, this is still an area that uh, is an emerging area. I would say an emerging uh, crime area, an emerging area. Uh, uh, on livelihood uh, as a question. We are still uh, looking into how best, you know, uh, what, what is the scope and scale of, uh, of this trade. Uh, unlike in, in, in Asia, specifically here, I'm mentioning India, I'm mentioning Indonesia, and I'm mentioning China, uh, where we see really the market being extremely pervasive uh, the actual connotation of uh, terming the actors as mafias really, really uh, comes out very, very uh, uh, livid. Uh, unlike here in Africa, for example, just to add to what Lucia is mentioning in Senegal and Sudan, uh, these are two huge countries. The construction boom in Senegal and Dakar, it's it's live, it's, it's televised. You, those who are in Dakar, those who have been there recently will see uh, the boom uh, that is uh, happening in, in, in a country uh, like Senegal. The same can be said in Kenya. We have built over 10,000 kilometers of road. We have embarked on some of the most flagship construction uh, in the region, you know, expressways here and there, some very massive dams uh happening uh nairobi is a huge concrete jungle right now of constructions everywhere where does that sand come from and i'm asking this not that i have the answer is that we are talking about illicit program uh, 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 illicit commodity sand is not illegal unto itself it's not a rhino horn it's not ivory uh, it's something that is illicit it's legal it's like I mean, any other uh, commodity that is there. So really the thin line here to know if this product has been harvested uh, sustainably because the laws in Kenya don't talk about sand mining, they talk about sand harvesting. It's almost in, impossible because once sand is loaded on a lorry, it's already a sold product uh, based on the demands that are there. And before I, 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 I wind out, is really to look at the cross-border uh, element of this trade. They are indication, maybe still anecdotal, uh, in Uganda, where is another a neighboring country where sand uh, mining is pervasive, especially from the Lake Victoria uh, uh, region, uh, that sand is being exported to the neighboring uh, countries uh, of Uganda. And again, quote unquote, still to be founded and further, that is being exported as far as countries like China. So all this is really an understudied area that requires uh, much emphasis uh, 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 at this level. And 
I mean, I, I don't want to talk much, but let me just mention this as, as my last rider. Sand is a local issue. It must be governed locally. As much as this debate is going to be discussed at the international forums, at the UN, at the AU, at the regional economic communities, but it remains the duty of the duty bearer, which is the nation state. We cannot regulate sand in Kenya from Geneva or from, from New York. We can develop the guidelines which are very much needed, uh, but it must uh, be a practice that emanates from uh, the, the state actors uh, themselves. I'll stop here and, and, and get more questions. Fantastic. Um, thank you for that uh, very valuable insight. You're absolutely right. This is uh, an issue that is global in nature. It's, uh, you see it happening everywhere, yet it manifests differently in different regions and it must be addressed at the local level. Now, um, question for you, Oluwale. Since, uh, I mean, the audience, um, sand and gravel are critical development minerals. They form up to 60 to 75% of concrete, any concrete composition. But so is Colton. Colton is a critical mineral that goes into much of uh, uh, our mobile phones and you know several others. Can you give us some um, insights into the demand side of the equation? And you know where is it going? Who's buying all this? Do we have any information on how uh, organized crime networks are interacting with the demand side of the equation? Thank you so much, Kieran. So from since the year 2000, cotton has been, in, there has been an increase in the demand for cotton and based on recent scientific development, the introduction of 5G technology, it has, all, it has further increased the demand for cotton because it's an essential commodity, mineral that is needed for the capacitor that is being built into some of these uh, modern devices that we're using. And in 2019, 40% of the global supply for cotton was actually derived from the DRC. Um, so it implies that um, the demand that you have for the mobile devices, for the phone, for the laptop, and all those things that have been developed from European capitals, the United States, the, um, Canada, China, Japan, Korea, um, a greater percentage of the source um, for this material is actually coming from the DRC. And as the world continues to talk about um, pilot for alternative energy, cotton is also one of the strategic resources that is going to be part of the landscape in terms of the conversation and in terms of the manufacturing of these essential mobile devices that we are now switching into. So the demand has largely been driven through international supply chain because refining and processing is not actually taking place in the DRC. The only place where some measure of refining is taking place in Rwanda. And Rwanda has um, far, far less than what um, is coming from the DRC. As a matter of fact, like I alluded to in the course of my presentation, um, these countries have become the conduit corridor through which the, the cotton is actually funneled into the global supply chain. So the demand is huge, the demand will continue, and then there's going to be a lot of rush for the Congolese cotton from the DRC. And then um, I don't see anything that is going to come in between that in a few days to come. 
as a result of the introduction of the 5G technology. That's interesting. So um, in, in terms of the responsible sourcing of Colton, can you give us more information on how, um, what kind of development you see in that area? Yes, in terms of the responsible sourcing of cotton, which also applies to all the strategic minerals in the DRC, um, there are a number of traceability and certification protocol by the European Union, by the United States of America, called the Doug Franklin. Uh, I think it was uh, in, uh, enacted in 2012 or thereabouts or 11, and about as I'm talking to you about five certification protocols have been implemented in the DRC, and that also raises a serious concern in terms of uh, integration and uniformity of certification itself. So what, what, what is found in the DRC is that, um, of course, some of these certification protocols are introduced, and then what you hear at the other end of the, of the, of the tunnel particularly in the recipient nation is that certification has been carried out. But when you consider the protracted war economy in the DRC, and that imposes a security challenge to actually accessing this court and deposit free of conflicts. And then you also consider the geography, you also consider the fact that uh, this is one country that is not even integrated with itself, talk less of being integrated to neighboring country in terms of availability of infrastructure, the road network and all those things to get to the mining site in the first place. So the certification in most places have actually become a ruse uh, which um, um, the, 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 the actors at the local level will tell you that they are engaging in it. But there's also an element of uh, connivance and organized crime in the process because uh, basically, the process works in a way that uh, there are people who engage in the certification, the non, the the, the civil society organization in I mean, in conjunction with the business community within the extractive sector. But what happens is that they are supposed to bag and tag some of those uh, minerals, the cotton itself. But the the, the 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 tag is also being traded in the underground economy. So it doesn't matter where you get the tag as long as your bag is tagged. And then um, people come out from the bush and say, oh, we have tagged the cotton. And then that is the message that is related at the, at the lower, at the upper end of the, of the, of, of the supply chain in the, in, in the advanced countries where this uh, mineral is actually being processed into capacitor. So uh, there, is a, there are limitations that make the certification actually impossible in the DRC, like I identified earlier. And a greater challenge within this spectrum is, the, uh, is, what, is what is tied to limited statehood. In terms of state presence in places where this mineral is being uh, explored, uh, it is very, very minimal. So enforcement becomes very difficult and the monitoring and evaluation of the traceability and certification process also becomes very difficult. So coupled with the underground economy of corruption that is going on. So uh, a limited percentage of the cotton that makes it into the upper end of the, of the supply chain is actually, actually, is actually certified a very limited portion. The other ones that are funneled into the global supply chain comes from these illicit sources uh, that I've mentioned, which is also compounded by the security challenges and other issues within the DRC. Right. Thank you for that. Um, so now uh, we have another question about, um, about 
elicit uh, about Western Sahara, if the, and I think this question can be directed to Abdel Qadir. I know that you have worked on this. Um, is there, does sand mining also happen in Western Sahara? Can you talk a bit, a bit about that? Uh, yes, sand mining. Can you hear me? Yes. I have an echo. Okay, I'll try to speak. Uh, yeah, sand mining um, occurs in Western Sahara, and um, more precisely, it occurs between Western Sahara and the uh, Spanish uh, Canary Islands. Uh, there are cargo ships uh, traveling from uh, uh, the port of La Union in Western Sahara to Las Palmas um, on a weekly basis. Um, yes, it occurs. It occurs, uh, and it's been occurring like this for four year, for years, for years now. Can you also help us understand why is that? Or why does that matter for those who may not be familiar with the context of Western Sahara, and uh, why does that matter? Well, when it comes to the Western Sahara, and, uh, and it's a good question uh, uh, um, you're asking. Yes, uh, the issue of Western Sahara and national resources of Western Sahara is an international issue, as um, uh, as we may or may not know. Western Sahara is a an occupied uh, territory by Morocco, so by law, by international law, uh, uh, Morocco is not allowed to extract any national resource from the uh, Western Sahara territory. Uh, yes, uh, yeah, this happens, uh, just like uh, Moroccan companies or the or OCP is involved in um, uh, um, uh, extracting national uh, um, sand, excuse me, sand from Western Sahara. Uh, and which is being transported and bought by uh, 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 Spanish uh, companies uh, in the uh, Canary Islands. Uh, so yes, there is this issue of um, environmental issue when it comes to uh, sand extraction, but also uh, an international legal issue, as by law, uh, Morocco is not uh, uh, allowed to extract any sand or any national resource from the um, uh, Western Sahara. We have a, a question from um, an anonymous question. So this is open to either Mohammed or Abdul Qadir. Do you know where European countries like, such as the UK get their sand from? Are they complicit in the corruption associated with the sand trade is the question. Either whoever wants to address this question. Maybe Mohammed. I can go fast on that. I do not have any authoritative information on that, on how the sun trade is regulated, uh, not only in the UK, but in, the, in Europe or in, in, uh, in Americas. Uh, we, we produce a very empirical and evidence-based uh, research before we communicate uh, some of our findings. Uh, but uh, in, in the media, we see that uh, most of uh, these unregulated sand harvesting practices are rampant in Africa and again in, in the Asian continent. That will be uh, my response here. Would you like to add to that, Abdul Qadir? Not really. I mean, just like um, I don't have any authority to say or to uh, to talk about uh, the UK or any place. But the only thing I could say is that sand trafficking is a national, but it's also a transnational uh, issue. Just like we mentioned Spain and, uh, and Las Palmas and the Canary Islands, Western Sahara, Morocco. But yeah, in Asia, uh, Dubai, the United Arab Emirates many places, but um, I cannot add more than that. 
Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. When we talk about 13 out of the 20 big world's biggest urban uh, cities, uh, urban areas going to be in Africa, we, really we're talking about huge, huge, massive, massive growth there. And uh, how can we ensure that we manage this growth? So um, all three of you are colleagues at the Institute of Security Studies. Um, and so I imagine you work closely. So I have a question for you, uh, my, my own question. Did you, uh, did you did you see do you see any similarities between uh, organized crime networks for Sand vis-a-vis -vis Colton? Are there any similarities or uh, really striking differences that you have seen? Open to the floor. Well, um, let me quickly take this before the the, the Sand researchers um, make um, probably a much more connected point. I would just say, in a sense, that uh, for the quarter mining, um, sand is part of the heart resource. And I think uh, a major environmental despoilation that is actually taking place in the GRC as a result of the illicit mining and trading of cotton is actually the despoilation of the environment. And soil is affected in this regard, which I believe to a large extent is part of the uh, of, uh, of resource. Um, which ties to, to sand. And then um, what you find out is that um, um, in terms of similarity, I think, um, like I've read in, in the unpublished, yet to be published report of the two, uh, Mohammed and Abdurrahman, what, what is important is that some of these places where this illicit extraction is taking place, what you find out is that um, it creates a pool, um, um, it creates multiple hole, um, potholes when, when that um, when it rains, then you have cesspools in those places, and then that becomes a breeding a, a breeding ground for, for for mosquitoes, which is a major challenge challenge, um, which poses a major edge challenge in the sub-Saharan Africa, and then it it affect, it has a direct effect on the health of the people within those local environments, and then by extension, it, uh, places where the soil has actually been despoiled in those places become very, very unuseful for agricultural purposes. And then um, everything is just about environmental degradation that leads to loss of biodiversity, poses at risk to the people, and then also affects the agricultural practices in those places. So that is a bit of link between quarter mining the, uh, the, that is done illicitly, and then environmental despoilation, which also relate to destruction of the environment in terms of sand, resource within those uh, places. I can go uh, next on that. Uh, the DRC is a very unique, I, I don't know if we can call it really a subcontinent inside a continent because uh, the one of uh, the biggest black market uh, route uh, really spans uh, from, from the DRC where you have an intricate uh, very complex uh, criminal actors uh, involved in timber, in wildlife products, uh, in resources like coltan uh, gold uh, that uh, uh, Wall is looking at. And I wouldn't be surprised uh, if you also have sand actors that are there. The DRC is in the eastern part of the continent. It's connected to the western part, southern part, central part. It's everywhere and it's a beehive uh, of activity. And this really black market uh, built uh, in Africa cannot be talked about uh, without really looking at what really goes on 
at, at the DRC. In, 20, in 2009, the World Bank estimated that the profits from a transnational organized crime in Africa uh, that move through the political economy stood at 1.3 billion US dollars. Two years later in 2011, we saw a 50% growth on that, uh, growing to a 3.3 uh, billion uh, US dollars. Uh, really unpacking some of these connections uh, between the different uh, forms of uh, criminal markets is still an area to be explored further. Uh, and, as an, and as the NACT uh, program, we are continuously using our regional organized crime observatory, exploring some of this uh, interconnection between the different, uh, the, the relation between the different uh, criminal markets. I would like also to finally add that uh, we have developed an organized crime index uh, that is a very useful tool to look at the impact of transnational organized crime in Africa that spans around over 10 different criminal markets uh, who are the four different type of actors uh, that drive these markets. You have the criminal networks, the entrepreneurs, the state mafias, I mean, the mafias and the state embedded actors. And then we also measure the resilience uh, that governments uh, use to look at uh, the different criminal markets in the continent. I'm going to post the link uh, in the chat box. It's an extremely useful uh, tool. We just launched the 2021 version uh, that you can explore the different types of uh, criminal markets uh, that operate in Africa. Thank you. Would you like to add anything to that, Abdul Kader? Just one point. I mean, just as as I was as I was saying in my uh, uh, presentation, yeah, uh, criminals on sand trafficking, you know, they're involved in, they're very flexible. They work on sand trafficking, but if they have any, any window of opportunity on other things, they would do it. Just like in Morocco, I mean, some drug traffickers are involved in, in, in sand trafficking, or at least in the sense that they use sand trafficking for money and laundering. So uh, I think that criminals are very, uh, yeah, flexible. Uh, they can be creative. And, uh, and yes, it happens there. It happens, uh, I think, um, in many other places. So you've mentioned um, how uh, there's a cement lobby and um, the criminal networks might be involved in money laundering and construction uh, through sand quarries. Do you see uh, this kind of, is that specific to Morocco or do you see it also happening in other parts of Africa? Well, again, I don't uh, haven't studied other parts of Africa to say whether uh, uh, there is a lobbying of uh, cement uh, companies, uh, and surely there's a there is a niche here to look at. But um, the, the 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 question is there to ask, and uh, there could be, but there could be. But again, I cannot say whether uh, I can give you a firm answer on that. Mm. Uh, Mohamed, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, not really. Uh, okay. We see some of the biggest merging economies in Africa, um, in the world, some of the fastest growing cities and some of the fastest growing uh, economies are located in, Af in Africa. Ethiopia is an example. Uh, Rwanda, Uganda, um, Kenya, uh, and this really accompanies a massive construction appetite in terms of civil infrastructure, in terms of you know 
any type of infrastructure that you're going to talk about. And two ingredients there are key, limestone, of course, for, for cement and sand. Uh, that, that, that would be my submission, Kira. And we're talking about multinational organizations rather than local ones, is that correct? Both. Both, yeah, both. okay. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. So I'd like to talk about, uh, we have limited time left, so I'm going to see if there's any question. <clears throat> All right, so the, another question is, the islands disappearing off the coast of Indonesia have already been mentioned. Is there any sign of this kind of environmental impact occurring in Africa in terms of coastal erosion or increased flood risks? Uh, hard to tell. It's, uh, it's more of a scientific uh, question, really. Uh, but one thing we know that uh, environment is not choosy. Uh, environmental impacts are it's not really a, a, a choosy uh, a question. We have seen uh, debates on issues of climate change and issues of environment that if it happens in one place, it's a collective impact uh, in the world. We saw that in tsunami. We saw that in many different types of uh, many different types of uh, uh, calamities that have taken place. I don't have an authoritative, you know, scientific response to this. If the impact of uh, uh, islands that have disappeared as a result of uh, man-made uh, uh, practices like sand mining in Asia having a direct impact in Africa, but based on the general concept of uh, the impact of uh, uh, climate change having uh, a global effect, I would say that there may be indications that what happens in other places can uh, indirectly or directly impact other regions such as Africa. Okay, uh, I, I know for sure that there, there is definitely research happening. I think Snusi et al. Um, might be the researcher to look for, to look for coastal erosion. She's done some research in Morocco in particular. Um, there, there's also other uh, research happening, but I can't recall the names immediately. Uh, Maybe I can share them with Abdul Qadir and he can uh, then share them with the rest of the audience if you have questions. Yeah. So um, now I would like to bring to the fore the gender perspective, because I think that's really important. Uh, when you talk about the sustainable development goals and the 17 goals, uh, women are often at the heart of, uh, they're very vulnerable and they are impacted whether it comes to minerals uh, such as Colton or sand and gravel. So if you can talk a bit more about uh, the impact of these kind of activities on minerals, uh, on, on women, and how, how do you think, and also um, children uh, dropping out of education to get into mining, and that's a huge problem uh, for the development of the region, uh, of the people. So how do you think we can address this? It's open to the floor, all of you. This is an issue. I mean, we, we, all the, I, I always believe that when you look at sand mining or whatever trafficking it is called Colton, uh, all these issues are intertwined. I mean, poverty brings uh, uh, this trafficking as well. And in the case of Morocco, for instance, this issue of um, uh, uh, children involved in sand trafficking is a key issue because many children there are involved. They're working. They're working for very little something like five euros per day for long hours, 12 hours, 14 hours per day. Uh, they're obviously, uh, they're missing school and uh, the future is really dark, really, very somber since all they have is working uh, in poverty and remaining in poverty. 
So this is an issue that has to be uh, has to be tackled. But I guess uh, there are other intertwined issues that have to be uh, um, uh, um, bring along. I mean, we're talking about education. We're talking about uh, uh, raising awareness of uh, of um, uh, education. So um, this is the case for Morocco, but I guess this is the case for many other places. But perhaps perhaps uh, Mohammed would like to uh, add something on that. I, I mean, I would add on the same lines, uh, specifically on the relationship of uh, the involvement of women uh, and poverty. I know Wole will really uh, speak on uh, the issues of the involvement of children. Uh, he covers this very ex extensively in his report uh, and also has published uh, pieces on the involvement of child uh, children in, in, in Colton mining. But we see both in flora and fauna crimes uh, that uh, this happened at, you know, at, at the local levels. Uh, and most of the time they happen in, for lack of a better word, you know, rural semi-arid arid places uh, where, you know, some of uh, these reserves uh, are still uh, present. And we see the involvement of, of, of women uh, uh, really at the periphery uh, levels uh, in the sense that, Mining extractive of natural resources is an extremely male-dominated uh, industry in all levels, in the extraction part, in the movement uh, part, and in the trading part. Uh, we see that male are really uh, in, in, involved in, in, in all those uh, levels. And we see that women play a role at the peripherals uh, of uh, uh, these value chains, if, if, you, if you would like. Uh, I would stop here uh, uh, and maybe pave way for Oluwole. Thank you so much, Kiri, and thank you, Mohamed. Uh, I think in terms of the role that women are playing uh, within the mining or what to tag as maybe criminal economy, um, they play multiple roles and they are also the only thing that I think is very striking that I most quickly underscore is the fact that um, the, the, within the value chain, they represent the vulnerable group who have to take to the trading because of the certain socio-economic disequilibrium that they're experiencing. And uh, there are also women who have become part of the big cartel that are actually engaging in the illicit economy. Uh, for the case of DRC, there are prominent names that have been mentioned in UN reports since 2000 up to 2020, who have been women who have been engaging in the illicit trading of strategic minerals like gold, diamond, and cotton. But much more uh, as far, uh, uh, to the extent to which that is an established criminal economy, it's also important to look at the plight of the vulnerable women who go to wash the minerals, who, who, who set food on the mining site, um, who have been at the recipient of the plights, such as gender-based violence that have been reported on mining sites, and then um, infection of um, um, communicable diseases such as uh, HIV AIDS, uh, which is also prevalent um, within the, um, um, uh, uh, on the mining site. So um, they represent, um, um, both the, 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 the criminal actors at a very minute scale, 
but much more in terms of uh, bearing the bond of uh, illegal mining and EDC trading of strategic minerals like the cotton, they are actually uh, vulnerable. And that also extends to the children. About 40,000 children are engaged in um, child mining uh, within the DRC on cotton mining, gold, diamond mining. And and they are also vulnerable. Some of them are out of school children. Some of them have been um, have been victim of a pervasive poverty uh, in the country, and they have to take to this. So, uh, on the final analysis, it affects the developmental outcomes in their environment, and they, it also impacts with the, uh, on their quality of life. And some of them have also been kidnapped by harmed group. I'm talking about these vulnerable children and take it to the bush to I mean, to join the rebel hamlets uh, in Eastern DRC. So it's a it mixed bag in terms of the gender rule and the, the, the effect of these illicit activities, particularly on the vulnerable groups. Thank you very much for that uh, enlightening discussion. We are really rapidly coming to a close. We have one last question before I give you uh, the opportunity for your closing remarks. Uh, Lucia asks, Mohammed mentioned the term sand harvesting as used in Kenyan law versus sand mining. Could you elaborate briefly on the implications of both terms? If you can keep your answer brief, that would be great. Mohammed, over to you. Yes, I, I think as I, as I earlier mentioned, harvesting uh, uh, really uh, connotes uh, uh, replenishing uh, cycle uh, in place. Sand really forms when rocks wither and then it's washed down to the sources, which is mainly water sources like rivers, lakes, and land uh, pits. But a journey of 10,000 years can actually, you know, you can mine the entire sand in less than a year, you know. So, and, and, and that's why that indicates that uh, the replenish rate and the, and the mining rate do not match even though sand is an unrenewable resource, it has been forced based on human practices to become a, a finite resource that, you know, once you mine it out, it becomes impossible to get the, 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 the right levels back. Thank you very much. Um, and so we are now at uh, very shortly about to end this session. Before I end the session, I'd like to... Uh, give you the opportunity to give your any closing remarks that you might have. Over to you, Oluwole. Let's go in the same order. Okay, I think my closing remark is going to revolve around the need to um, muster multi-stakeholder engagement in terms of advocacy reform that we need within this extractive sector. Um, it feeds into the broader conversation and theory about resource costs. Some of the direct brunt is borne by the local people in these communities where this extractive process is taking place. And more often than not, their voices are not heard. And we have the intellectual responsibility to, 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 to escalate this to a global audience that might have one or two things to do as far as those solutions are concerned. Uh, as long as the criminal actors are making the money, it's also important to underscore the fact that uh, the local people, the community people, need their plight need to be addressed. And it has to be multilateral, business community, the civil society, the media, the academic community. We have to put pressure on the states to act in the interest of the people and mobilize political power 
to actually drive the necessary reform that will reflect in the quality of life of the people that are found around this mining and extractive uh, uh, community. Thank you. And thank you very much. Over to you, Mohammed. I'll say two things. One is that, as is right now, we don't have an alternative to sand. A formidable alternative to sand, we don't have it. So we really need to rethink uh, uh, on how best we're going to live with this product. Why? Because it's the most used resource. It's the second most used resource in water. And Africa right now, it's a theater uh, of constructions. And the top ingredient of that is sand. So we must look for ways uh, uh, to live with it. Uh, second, we must regulate sand at these local levels and look for ways that you know we can actually uh, put in place guidelines and frameworks, uh, authorities that can regulate the sand trade. Those will be my two pointers, Kira. Okay, thank you very much. I would challenge the no alternative pitch, but you're right, absolutely, they need to be developed. Uh, over to you, Abdel Kader, for your last, um, for your final remarks. Uh, just one one point, uh, I just hope that um, all those who have attended this uh, uh, session today, uh, just to remind them that uh, not to see sand the way they might have perceived it before that. I just hope that from now on, when anyone, when they go on holiday a bit in Morocco, in southern Spain or wherever, uh, laying on a beach, you know, enjoying the sun, uh, I just hope that they will see sand differently. That's all I could say. Absolutely. So um, that brings us to the end of this session. I would like to thank each of the panelists for your really insightful uh, presentations and your discussions. I would also like to thank the Secretariat team who has been uh, working behind the scenes. It was um, organizing this, handling questions, managing the, uh, the whole flow of the event. Thank you very much to the audience members for joining us and for submitting your questions. I hope you enjoyed uh, this particular session. Look forward to seeing you in other sessions. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.